Welcome back to The Cusp, this is Michael Saramella, and this episode is going to be dedicated specifically to the Vans Pipe Masters. The event just ended, and shortly Stacey's going to come in to chat about everything. Winners, losers, interferences, and everything in between. So, let's jump right in. Yes, indeed, Mikey. That was very exciting. I mean, alright, huge event, so many things to talk about. I want to go through this in a bit of a structured fashion, if that's okay with you, because there are a lot of talking points, and I don't want to miss any. And, you know, we have a tendency to just go off on tangents, which is great, but I also want to be able to rein it back in. So first things first, let's talk about conditions. What did you think? They ran three days. They were supposed to run three rounds. They only did two rounds and then the final uh, as a result of the conditions. But what did you think overall? I actually think that was the perfect number. Uh, I was pretty pretty happy with that. Three days in a row of surfing is seems pretty spot on to me. Uh, I'll also go out on a limb and say, now this might sound ridiculous, but I would sacrifice slightly better conditions on, say, day four with a gap in the middle than slightly worse conditions for just the third day being, like, runnable and you just run three days in a row. Did, did that make sense? Mm, you like the momentum. I just love the momentum. I bloody hate it when you, you know, any event happens all the time on the CT and obviously, you know, it's no one's fault. It's just Mother Nature. But I love momentum. I love it just going three days in a row and you really get to, you know, whoever won these events was such a deserving champion. They won it in such a variety of conditions. It was, yeah, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, and they also, I mean, for what it's worth, they picked the absolute eyes out of this forecast. Like, they had 13 days to run the thing, and there were maybe 15 contestable hours within those 13 days, and they got all of them. So good job to Nate uh, Fletcher, who was the contest director. That second day, like, magically turned back offshore in the afternoon and looked like almost really proper pipeline. Um, And, yeah, I think they did what they could with the conditions. We know December is always a bit of a tricky window. That's part of the reason, I think, why, you know, the WSL shifted to that, that later window in, like, late Jan, early Feb. But they did a great job with what they had. And the, yeah, I guess with that, let's get into the format. You said you liked the two preliminary rounds. I would have loved to have seen the third, or actually the two would have been fine if the waves were really good for both of them. It felt like there were some groups of surfers who never got put out in like good conditions. Like I think about like a Rasta Rob, like he he never really had a chance in good conditions because he happened to have the first heat that first day and then a heat when the wind had gone bad the other day. So it was tough for some surfers, obviously, you know, a bit of luck of the draw. Also, a lot of skill involved and the people who made it to the final um, were certainly deserving on both sides, but I would have loved that. And I will also say that this style of competition, especially in the first round, it really relies on wave quality because there's not that heat-by-heat heat drama of who's going to make it and who's not. So it's really all based on performance. That said, I really loved watching the second round when you saw people like jumping into and falling out of the top four and you knew that was like their last shot. Like If they didn't make it on in this heat, you know they were out. Or if they made it and then somebody knocked them out and they were out. So that was pretty exciting. And then you know, obviously they, a lot of the inspiration for this format came from the backdoor shootout. And, you know, they even like talked to Eddie during the broadcast, but I really love the addition of having the final at the end of it. The backdoor shootout, you just run however many rounds you go and whoever has the best waves at the end of it wins. This one, 
you have to qualify with your best waves, then you go into the final. And I think that adds that real finality to it, like that last moment of like you have to perform the WSL finals-esque feel to it. So I think they nailed it with that. What about you? Yeah, I, I agree. I think the, the format was great. And getting back to servers that missed out on, on quality waves, like obviously that's a bummer. And I can think of a few surfers there that really never got their chance to sort of show what they're you know truly capable of. But at the end of the day, that is pipeline. Like we are so used to this Instagram world of, oh my God, everyone's getting blown out of barrels. Like almost makes you want to book a ticket and try and surf it. That is not how that wave operates. Like even when it's firing, it's still moody. And I don't think there's, I mean, maybe there is, but I don't think there's much of a way around that. If you're giving groups of surfers an hour over two days to have you know a chance to show their ability and get a couple of decent waves like man, we're gonna you're just gonna be there forever if, if people aren't getting those waves and it's unfortunately i think that's just the sport we're in and yeah i don't think you could do too much to change that no and it you know it set up some really really fascinating moments because like for instance in that second day the second round for the men it did get nice in the afternoon again and you had in a situation where Jao chianka got two waves uh, Griffin got his final wave to get him through. And then in the last heat of the day, Kalana Poe got two waves in the last like 10 minutes of that heat to go from absolutely nowhere on the leaderboard to number one. And it was like just this beautiful moment. And so many people were so happy for him, of course, because he's the only true Hawaiian that ended up making the final. But just any sports fan would have been on the edge of their seat watching that. So yeah, it was, it made for some really exciting viewing, even if the waves were not like ideal, pristine pipeline. So with that, thoughts on the no priority. How did you think that that went over throughout the event? I think when the waves are quite solid, it, it doesn't really matter. But when it's small, it, it, it looks pretty average, I thought. You didn't like it? I don't know. I just think like it just sort of shows that human element of competition, which we obviously love. But at the same time, it can't help but feel like you're watching a slow car crash like when surfers start to hassle with less time on the clock it always just I feel like if you're going to hassle you might as well hassle from the first horn not just the last so yeah I don't know it wasn't the best to watch for me when it was small well surprisingly to me was the fact that the women were the ones who were basically burning each other the most like we had Bellinalu burned Tatiana Weston Webb in the first round granted it didn't really look like she knew that Tati was there but then, of course, the big one was Sierra Kerr. Sierra Kerr on Pua de Soto in the second round of the women's. Sierra got probably the best backdoor wave she's ever gotten. Probably would have been a 30 out of 30 on the score sheet for the day. It was unbelievable. She basically said, yeah, I thought I was taking off on a closeout. And she thought Pua was going left. So Sierra, you know, it's the end of the heat. You're going to go. She pulls in. She starts pumping. And she just keeps pumping. And the wave keeps going. Like, that's the magic of backdoor is, you know, sometimes you get one of those waves. It reminded me, you know, to a lesser extent, but of that wave that Slater got a few years ago when um, I think Joanne Daru went left or something like that. And the right would have just looked like this endless wall. And you, sometimes you just go and you find out and it just has this like extra bit of hold at the end and you can squeak out and beautiful moment. But unfortunately, it was marred by a triangle. So Sierra didn't make it into the final. And her reaction to that, finding it out on the beach, that was one of the best like surf competition reactions I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, that was pretty pretty raw, pretty unfortunate, but you know, 
it's not that surprising to me to see, you know, the, the women be getting all the, all, all the interferences, I think. <laughs> Did the men get any? It's, uh, they are well, pretty Well, there was one moment between Craig and Noah. Did you see that one? No, I didn't. So I don't know if it officially got called as an interference. I'll have to go back and check. But what happened was Craig was out the back, you know, basically like second reef, one and a half reef, whatever you want to call it. And he chips into this wave and he's standing on it. And then inside and deeper, Noah Bestian turns and paddles and takes off. And, you know, maybe as a result of the rules of the competition or maybe as a result of just the local deference, Craig kicked off the wave. But... Yeah, it was an interesting moment for sure where I think in like a normal lineup where all things were equal, like ne say neither of them were local or both of them were local, like Craig would have for sure had the right to that wave. But in a competition, it gets a little murky because technically he's not deeper, but he's up first. Yeah, it's it's confusing, I guess. It's 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 who makes a turn in their chosen direction first. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I didn't see it, so I don't know how much daylight there was between both surfers standing up. It's it's not necessarily who stands up first, but it, it certainly helps. But again, if you're a non-local and a local does that underneath you, yeah, what are you going to do? And particularly if you're Craig, <laughs> you, you don't want that confrontation. So you're going to get out of there. But yeah, it's um. Yeah, interesting. But I guess you're right. Like, it created that extra drama and everything. I, I, I think that was cool. And, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll get to it. But how it played out in the final, it, it really worked in, in Balaram's favor. He just seemed to do his thing and he didn't get caught up in any of that nonsense at all. Yeah, well, and speaking of the final, the women's final, we talked about um, Belinalu and Sierra. It seemed like both of them didn't really know the person was behind them. Carissa, on the other hand, she doesn't look back, but she had to know Betty Lou was there. Like, there's no way. Like, in my mind, it was one of those situations where it's like, hey, I'm going to go. You can go behind me if you want. That's your choice. You know what I mean? But you get to deal with the, the consequences of that and how it makes you feel afterwards. Because, you know, Chris is coming into this. She's surfing against basically a bunch of young girls. She is undeniably the most dominant surfer in this event. And after watching this event, probably like the most dominant surfer going both directions at Pipeline for sure as a woman. Um, and it just looked like she'd probably been waiting a little bit longer than Betty Lou and maybe Betty Lou was doing a bit of that back paddling we were talking about. And Chris was just seemed like she was kind of fed up with it. And she's like, fuck it, I'm going, you know, and obviously it cost her a chance to win the whole thing. But it also sets up some really interesting storylines for next year's CT because I don't think people forget about moments like that very quickly. No, definitely not. I, I'd have to agree with you. It was definitely a, I'm going, and you can figure out what happens if if you go as well. Um, it's it's almost like in crowded lineups, who paddles with more intent seems to catch the waves. Uh, but in a competition format, it's definitely not how it works. And um, I think in a situation like that, it is obviously who has the pure inside, whereas with the Noah Craig situation, without seeing it, it sounded like a little bit of perhaps bending it the other way. Um, but yeah, in that situation, yeah, that was a um, really not worth it for the wave either, I don't mm, think. Okay. So, and sorry, just to backtrack a little bit, there has been a lot of talk about how Sierra shouldn't have gotten an interference perhaps because Pua, where she was taking off, she had no chance of making that wave. So it's a little bit interesting because, you know, by the standard definitions of surfing, yes, I would say Sierra dropped in on Pua. But when the whole point of this event is maybe to take a step away from the WSL, you know, governing body and what is this, you know, X, Y, Z, 
you do have to, it seems like the judges could have used some discretion in that. So what did you think? Do you think they could have gone no call with that or there's just no avoiding dropping an interference on Sierra? Oh, gee, it's really interesting. Uh, I think without priority, there was probably enough room in between them to not call it. Yeah, I, I don't think that Pua was making it. So I guess that's what you rely upon. Like, was her scoring opportunity affected? Um, probably not. Yeah, so interesting. It's, you know, unfortunate for Sierra, but a good thing to think about, I guess, moving forward. I can only assume that this event is going to continue in more or less the same fashion for a long time. So, yeah, it's just one of those things that the judges can look at and decide, you know, maybe if this happens again next year, maybe we would look at it a little differently. So speaking of which, let's talk about the criteria. Obviously, in the lead up to this event, there was so much talk about airs and turns and obviously tubes as well. But, you know, where people were getting stuck a little bit is like, oh, you're going to score airs, but it's a tube wave, blah, blah, blah. In the end tubes ended up being the thing that won the event. But what did you think overall about kind of seeing people go for more errors and maybe not as many huge turns as we would have liked, but definitely seeing them hit sections that maybe they wouldn't in a normal pipe event? I don't know. I kind of overall think, you know, we spoke about the other podcasts, like every single wave that Italo finished when he won the title in 2019, he did an air. And I think back to like Andy the year that he didn't win the title, but he, he won pipe. Like he was, he was hitting the end bit on the sandbar and doing big floaters and it was gnarly. So I don't know that that was ever been an issue for people. Like I don't, I know it never got scored. Like Gabriel beat Mick out there doing a two foot air on a one foot wave, but it's, it, it was definitely cool, but we didn't see any of it really. I didn't see one thing different to what we would expect to see in a, in a CT. I think Mikey Wright's wave was the most unique wave that I saw. Um, and that's just because of the conditions. And I think that's, that's great. I think the, the criteria and the, the format's awesome because it, it lends itself to a bit of leeway if the conditions do turn away from tubes. We can still get as excited because we know we're not going to be watching this like half baked kind of air contest you know it's going to be a full-blown shootout if you know the winds pop up and the tubes aren't that good and and whatever so yeah i'm bummed we didn't get to see it because the the list of servers that were in there were incredible but yeah it's i don't think it's that different okay well i'm going to push back on that because there was a moment in the second women's round that i was like wow this really is changing the way that people think about surfing and are approaching this wave and it was aelin vast she got a pipe wave where she took a late drop, pulled in, got, you know, a nice little pocket ride shampoo tube, comes out, does a turn, and then goes for an air on the end section. And it, it doesn't sound like much when I just explain it, but when you watch it, you're just like, there's no way that she would have ever gone for that air. Like, even when you listen to, I think it was Cliff Capono who was commentating it, and the way that he reacted, he's like, whoa, an air on the end. And there's just no way that she would have gone for that in a normal contest because it's not... It wasn't promoted as like this thing that is going to actually like propel you forward that much at Pipeline. And now it is. And I saw that on the men's side as well. I think guys were going for sections like Emi tried to do a turn on a section that he even said that in a normal contest he never would have hit. I think you could tell guys were like really thinking when they were coming out of the tube, like this wave's not done yet. And anytime that it gave him an opportunity, they were really going for it. And yeah, we didn't get that Tom Carroll snap-esque moment that we were looking for, but 
I think this is just the first year of this event, and in the future, we're for sure going to see something crazy go down. And also in the men's final, there was a really fascinating moment at the end where I really wish that Griffin landed his air because it would have forced the judges to make a call right then and there. They built up all this talk in the lead up to the event about we're going to score progression. And it's like, how are you going to score a full rotation at back door versus Balaram's two air or Balaram's two barrels? Sorry. And like in my mind, when I watched it, I was like, they almost would have had to give Griffin the score. Like they hyped it up so much that rightly or wrongly, they kind of would have had to drop it on him. But I don't know. It To me, I could see the clear difference in the way that people were approaching the waves, even if, you know, to your point, they were also hitting sections 20 years ago. I think it was a little bit different. And I think in the future, we're going to see something really, really crazy come out of this. So to me, it's super exciting to see the criteria change. And I think it's actually pushing the sport into the future. Griffin Colapinto 100% wins the event if he lands that air. Yeah, I think so too. And you can't, you can't, you can't not give him the the score that he needed, which was about a six, I believe. Um, you know, eighteen and a half points, I think, was the number. Man, like <clears throat> there was no way that in a regular setting he would have deserved to win the contest, but with the way that they've hyped it up and everything, like it, he'd have to be the winner. It, it, he had variety over two waves. He had a tube and an air. That's that's what I'd been talking about all week. But you raise a really interesting point, and I think it, it probably pertains more to women's surfing than than the men's. And and I and I say this in in a way of like the curve of improvement for the women's surfing we've talked about a lot is so steep. And I think the this criteria change it almost it impacts their surfing more than the men because five years ago you would have never seen that many women out there you know, like at Sierra Kerr's age, for instance, getting psycho legitimate backdoor tubes and they've been given this opportunity and they're absolutely standing up. They're crushing it. So I think it sprinkles in both. Like they're pushing it as hard as they can in the tube riding department. And then when they're being presented with air sections, they're also, you know, doing amazing things there as well. And so I think like to Cliff's point and to your point, yeah, the new criteria is sick, and we are seeing a pushing of like women's surfing. I feel, but you know, I, I'm not feeling that same way with the men. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, we watch pipeline people do airs. Like, it's happened forever. All right, fair enough. But on that point, we talked so much about the roster in this event in the lead up because there were all these different and exciting names. Now that we've actually seen it come to fruition. How do we feel about that? How do we feel about inviting, you know, people like Rasta Rob, Noah Dean, um, Harry Bryant, Aton Osborne, who might not get a start in a typical Pipe Masters, right? Like, and there was a lot of pushback from especially locals who felt like I've been surfing this wave for decades. I've put in my time. I'm clearly like, you know, very accomplished out here. How are these guys getting in? And I'm not. Um, how do we feel about that now after the fact? I think it's sort of every season there's that feeling towards pipeline uh, and, and the, the, the events that get run there. And I think I think the draw was amazing. It was plenty of local talent, plenty of sort of local talent that is international, you know, recognizing you know, Kyle Rothmans and Eli Olsons and, and, and other big names like that mixed in with crew like Kailana Apo who haven't been you know, they've always been there, but they haven't been in the scene as much as the other guys. So, man, I thought the variety in the draw was amazing. And then <clears throat> you have people like Aitan and Harry Bryant. You, you saw their performances. Like, I think that's the one thing that 
most locals around the world at any break that they have that special place in their heart for. They just don't want to see a wave go unridden or an opportunity missed. And those two guys in particular to me, like if a wave comes, they're going. And, you know, Aton's wave was, that, that has to be the wave of the comp, right? Oh, I don't know. I think there might've been some better ones, but Aton's wave was maybe the most like just picturesque, like TP perfectly peeling, tapering back door wave for sure. It was absolutely beautiful. Perfect. The thing was wider than it was higher and it was, it was still a high wave. Well, I just mean it came in like this giant try, like a freaking just perfect tapering wave. You know what I mean? Like that backdoor wave that you dream of. Maybe it's a nightmare for most of us, but coming right to you. And he just wrote it perfect. Like he, he did everything he wanted to do. He came in and he was so stoked. And, and that's the one thing too, I guess, is there was a really clear difference in this event. There were kind of two groups of people as I saw it. There were the people who were like so stoked to be there and are thinking, I just want to get one wave. Just one wave will make it okay for me. And then there are the people who are thinking, I want to win $100,000. You know, the most prominent of which was probably Billy, who came in and said as much in his post-heat interview, all bloodied and beaten by pipeline. Um, and then, you know, Aton and Harry go out there and they're just like, man, I'm so happy. I just, I got the freaking backdoor wave that I'd always dreamed about. And, and I think that that's cool. Like not everybody, just cause it's a contest, you know, not everybody has to be bloodthirsty necessarily. And I think those guys bring an element to it that we haven't seen before. And also to the point of like, you know, knocking out Hawaiians and locals and stuff to put these guys in, this event had more Hawaiians and locals than any pipe masters in recent memory. There was 50% Hawaiians in this event. You know what I mean? So to like be upset about those guys getting in, it's like, no. Just- I haven't seen that much pushback. I saw a little bit of pushback around Josh Moniz. Uh, but other than that, I thought everyone seemed fairly understanding of the situation. Uh, there is, you know, well, there's the... The Albies, the Tories, Mackay McNamara, um, you know, the list goes on. But it is what it is. Like, it's a it's a contest. You can't involve everybody and everything. And those guys have had plenty of time in their careers to, to get to surf that wave, both in and out of competition. So it is what it is. That's the roster. We're both seemingly on the same point here that it's good for surfing. It's good for the sport. It's good for the event. So now let's talk about the roster in the booth. Because this was a very different sort of production and commentary team that we've seen in some time. So uh, we had Sal, we had Dylan, we had Cliff Capono, and we had Makua Rothman. What were your thoughts on them? Can't forget uh, Mahina Florence. Ah, yes, of course. Mahina on the sand. Crazy team. The dynamic between all of them was great. Um, I thought Dylan and Makua were amazing. Uh, and... Yeah, it, it was really cool. I think there's a few things that come to mind as to why it was so easy to listen to. I think there was always good variety in the booth of, of character. So you weren't just getting like the same sort of person talking back and forth between one another. It was always, you know, a big personality like Makua. And then you've got someone like Dylan, who obviously has a completely different worldview to him. And then Cliff Capano. you know, he, I'd never listened to him talk before, but he, he's amazing. Yeah. So that was, I mean, the way I see it, Makua is easily one of the best commentators in surfing, period, especially in Hawaii, of course, because he has so much local knowledge and roots and everything. But he's just his ability to speak. He's so like calm and funny and just like nails it every single time. And then Cliff was this amazing addition, bringing so much knowledge in terms of both science and like Hawaiian culture and language. Um, Dylan is just such a likable guy. And then 
it seemed to me like Sal is just the glue that sort of holds it all together. And then Mahina on the beach, first of all, just has such like a a nice presence, almost like a like a motherly presence. Like you just seemed like everybody was at ease talking to her, especially when she was chatting with Sierra after the whole incident. She was like really comforting and graceful. And yeah, I, I think that they had a really, really cool rapport, everybody on that group. And I think also though, like just to give a little bit of fairness in the other direction. We just see so much of that WSL cast that anybody that you listen to for, you know, over the course of an event, you're listening to them for what, 30 hours and then times that by 10 and then times that by however many CS events and QS events you you, watch, you know what I mean? Like it just gets tired listening to the same people. So it was just cool to see some fresh faces, um, fresh voices and whatnot. And yeah, it was a great, great show. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're right. It is like, I remember when, you know, the Vulcan Pipe Pro would come on or whatever and there would be a new commentary team there and everyone would go, whoa, you know, this is, they should be doing it the whole year. But yeah, you're right. Like I think, I think everyone has their, their spot and everyone does a, everyone does a good job. It's a incredibly hard job to do, particularly at that pipeline on day one there's a lot of slow heats and I never really felt like I was bored um I think you know shout out to pod dog senior Danny Johnson he did an amazing job of all those profile pieces that um we saw getting filtered out throughout the throughout the uh event and that really helped a lot also Shin Um, can we talk about Shin the the art direction and all the graphics and everything and down to the jerseys and stuff was fucking amazing like it just looked so good the the light tan or beige or whatever you want to call it like for the scores and everything like just such a great change up from the wsl blue and white yeah so can you give us some more insight into that because six months ago um i caught up with sam and tom and they were sort of i don't know if i misheard them but stab produced the webcast is that the right term no we had actually very little to do with the like live broadcast part of it it was more we were producing content in the lead up which was those um those things you were talking about that danny made and then we were helping with the general like direction of the event um you know we had some conversations about the surfers that were going to be in it i think shin particularly had a big hand in the art direction of the whole thing so we were sort of involved in all of it, but we definitely weren't the ones that were putting on the broadcast by any means. No, I guess producing is kind of a very broad and, and vague term, but yeah, that is a fair bit of input. Uh, and I, I didn't expect, um, you know, Tom Burton, Sam McIntosh to be sitting behind a director's chair and, and pushing buttons and when to call replays and whatnot. But <laughs> um, hey, maybe in the future. Um, but yeah, so Stab and, and Shin and, and obviously all, all, all the team in there had like, a pretty big hand in, in what we saw on our screens. Yeah, you could say that, yeah. Like Shin designed the set, right? Yeah, Shin designed the set. It was the same set that we used for that pipe pre-show, um, which I was joking with him because the uh, the single seat on the right-hand side of the screen, which is basically just a box, it uh, it's not very well attuned for short people like myself, and that was where I was sat for the show. And it was also really funny trying to watch uh, Dylan Graves sit on it throughout the show, too. And he would try to get off that thing as quick as possible. Like, any time another seat opened up, he'd be like, oh, I'm going to slide over here. Um, it looked more normal under people like Cliff, who have a bit more height to them. But, yeah, that was sort of a running joke between <laughs> Shin and I. You fucker. Why do your legs kind of dangle there like a schoolboy or something? Yeah, exactly. And there's nowhere to put your feet. The seats on the left, they had these like little footstools that you could put them on the right hand side. You're just dangling. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I thought that, I thought that was great. And I thought that um, there was 
the, the graphic when something happened, broken board or a good score or whatever, and the, the surfer's name came up across the screen quite large. and That was amazing. Prom- prominent. I thought that was amazing due to the fact that we did see a lot of names in there that we wouldn't see. We're not probably going to see until the same event next year. You know what I mean? Like, mm. So I thought it was great for you know the casual fan to you know get connected with whoever these names and people and moments might be. Yeah, it seemed pretty, you know, normal to people like yourselves who we watch every event that ever gets listed on the on the internet. But, you know, oh, that's who that person is, and you get to see them up close, and then they ride their wave, and there is that connection to the profile. And it doesn't feel patronizing to the like, you know, the nuanced viewer either. Like, it doesn't feel like you're getting hit over the head with it. It feels clean, and also like the you know made the top four that sort of graphic coming up every time that somebody jumped into the top or whatever. Like it was it was super helpful, easy to watch, easy to understand. That said, um, it definitely was I think a little bit tricky to understand the scoring and whatnot. Like just with the thirty point scale and everything, and like it, it took us a second, but I think that'll come with time as well for the viewer. Like I went into it armed with some knowledge and background i would imagine going into it blind you'd be like what the hell they got a 12.6 on that wave like (laughs) but obviously the commentators did a good job of explaining that as they went and whatnot and i think like i said over time that'll become more clear when this event becomes more of a staple yeah i agree and i almost think like they could even be more stoic in just saying that was a 15 yeah, I, I didn't really think they needed to say, oh, and so that'll be a five. Because then it's just more confusing. It's like, oh, hang on, what, how do we get to, you know, like, hey, this is just how it's scored. It's three scores added together. There is no high and low cutout, and it's just out of 30 every time. Like, it, once they got rolling, it was pretty straightforward. I actually found it more confusing by day three when they're like, oh, he needs an 18.3. And so it's, it's about a six. About a six what? Like, no, no, it's not. It could be a five and two sevens. Like... <laughs> Okay, I have one critique of the commentary team as well, and this is not necessarily specific to the Vans Pipe Masters commentary team. It's about commentators in general. So take this on uh, on your own head, Stacy. And it's I hate, 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 hate when the commentators qualify their dissection of a wave or a score by saying, "But I don't know. I'm not a judge." It's like, yes, you are. We all are. Anybody who's intently watched competitive surfing for 10 plus years is just as good a judge as anybody in that panel like or you know what i mean like the guys in the booth are not gods they're just people obsessed with surfing like the rest of us so let's not treat them as if they're you know like the all-seeing deities of surfing like if they blew a call just call it out don't pander yeah i I agree i think it's the one thing that we don't have enough of and it happens in every other sport it's what i definitely struggle with it's like the commentators bash the ref it's just part of it it's we all tune in and you don't have to agree with the commentators either just as much as you don't have to agree with the judges like it's fine it's so fine no mikey i'm actually safe there because anytime i've ever said that on a broadcast um i actually follow it up with uh you know i'm not a judge oh actually wait yes i am (laughs) (laughs) there you go thank you stacy one for the culture all right so We've talked. Yeah, I mean, it's hard though. It is. You do feel. I will say, I had an incident recently, actually, at an event where I called a wave, and I was like three points off the, off the what actually came out, and I did it twice in the space of an hour. And it does. (laughs) It hurts your confidence a little bit. You you do tend to pull back, but it is really hard to call off the screen. And there are some broadcasts around the world that used to set up over the ocean. Bell's was one of them, and you could like. 
I never worked on them, but you would turn over your shoulder and actually see the wave live. And then 30 seconds later, you could give the call. And so you could have a bit more depth and context as to what happened. Throwing scores off that screen, it does need some sort of a safety net there. Maybe it's not, oh, but I'm not a judge. It's, oh, well, that's how it looks from the booth. Because it is definitely how it looks from the booth. It's a lot different to how it looks from the tower. And even the tower at Pipeline, it being critical of the venue, the, I don't know where the Vans Tower is set up. I'd imagine it would be the same spot, but the, 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 the WSL Pipe event, it's set up like freaking at Eukai Beach Park. Yeah, You're pretty so much weird. judging all of Backdoor off a replay. So, you know what I mean? They're judging off a replay as well. So, uh, it's tricky. It, it, it is very hard. And, hey, I'm, I'm not a judge. <laughs> all right so we've talked about pretty much everything about this event except for most of the action that went down so let's get into the women first i'm so glad that nate fletcher put the ball in the women's courts on the big day like it was just such a brilliant call because it's like here's your opportunity do you want it or not and of course at that point the women have no choice but to say yeah fuck i guess we're going and they went out and they fucking crushed it like you know relatively like Carissa's wave was unbelievable would have been a huge score in either of the categories uh Katie Simmer's wave was amazing Moana and Sophie Bell charged Laura's freaking launch from the lip was it should basically be an NFT um I think it was a really positive step for women surfing to go out that day and you know just basic because if they would have surfed the last day sure they could have done it but it wouldn't have meant anything and that was pushing it again, just same as last year that they did in the backdoor shootout and also in the pipe CT. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, that the improvement curve for the women in, in waves like that is incredible. It's amazing to see them getting their opportunities and, and really maximizing it. And you, you just see little snippets of waves that, yeah, they might not be big scores, but you get to see an insight into that person's character on live TV. And like Laura Enova is a great example of that. Like, holy smokes. That she's got so much bravado and get up and go. It's like you stand next to her. She's like four foot ten, thirty. It doesn't kilos, make any sense. Just heart of gold. It doesn't make any sense. Like she's, yeah. It's it's it. Oh my. It's yeah. Anyway, so she's yeah one of the you know most exciting surfers to watch when the waves get like that. Again, an opportunity comes. They're going to swing and go, and that's that's what you want to see, you know. And then other little snippets that I guess I, I noticed, and I'm sure you did as well. Like Katie Simmers can backside barrel ride, like mm, proper pig dog. That's true. And you know we had that conversation and last that, week. And I don't. There's not many that really can look that locked in, like look super comfortable like that. She's. Obviously, I think Molly Picklum too. Molly got a wave on the first day that she didn't make, but she knifed it really well backside and pulled up into it as well. So I think that she's going to be on that level too. Um, I know we had that conversation last week about females backside tube riding. Vahine Fierro also, I saw her on her right and people always think of her at Chopo, but I think she actually grow, grew up on one of the rights in Tahiti and you could see her technique, which she was actually stalling with her front leg, which... I haven't seen women do much at all. So I think she's in that conversation too. I'm sure we'll see a lot more of her in coming years, not just in this event, but probably on the CT as well. So that'll be cool. Um, and your Dark Horse won. So congrats, Stacey. I hadn't told you that yet, but yeah, good pick on Molly. Up the pickles. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you there. She definitely has the, the, um, the same sort of style and technique that you see like a lot of the men have when they drop and they're you know they're connected over their front leg and they're they're happy to kind of sink their butt and thigh into the wall to slow down and she put up a couple of framies on her instagram she didn't make the waves but similar to her wave in round one like 
was happy to swing and go. Uh, and so, yeah, it's um, cool to see. And I, pretty wild. Like she's only 20 or something, 21. Pipe master. Just won 100K. Mm, how good. <laughs> Fucking wild. Um, and then, of course, Moana didn't win. The conditions were not really to her liking, obviously. And she actually got pretty slammed on the first day. She got compressed to the reef. I think she hit her head. She had to get checked out by first the ski, and she waved him off, went back out. And then when she came in, she got checked out by the medical team. It sounds like she's all right. Maybe a little, you know, dazed and obviously pretty frightened after that. Like, after you have a moment where you get, like, pinned to a reef, whether it's pipe or anywhere in the world, you have a second of contemplation. Like, should I? am I really doing this? Like, should I be out here? Um, so I'm sure she'll shake that off quickly because she loves pipeline more than anything. But, um, yeah, that's it. We have a winner. Molly Picklum is technically the first female pipe master in history. So well on to Molly. I think you need to clarify that for all the keyboard warriors that don't listen to our podcast and probably never will. But can you just clarify? Yes. So obviously there's been a CT event and a half at Pipeline uh, being 2022 this year in January and 2021. They finished the CT there, I guess. Yeah, 2021. Um, However... At that point, Vans had basically taken its Pipe Master's namesake and moved it to its own event. So the CT event, which runs every year, is no longer the Pipe Master's. So for instance, and this kind of hurts me to say, but technically speaking, Kelly Slater still only has seven Pipe Masters because he won his eighth Pipe CT event this year, but technically it wasn't a Pipe Master. So we'll have to you know, consult the gods on that one because that feels a little bit wrong to me but <laughs> oh no we don't have to consult the gods we need to consult uh vans's legal team uh because you've just danced around my question quite beautifully vans own the ip to the words pipe masters and you will notice on their list of champions it is not the first men's champion they have you know rightfully or wrongfully taken every other winner from the other event and placed it on their winners list uh, and everyone moving forward, a la Kelly. They also gave Crosby Colapinto one with an asterisk. I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> oh, that asterisk was massive. They did him bad. But I'm glad they did. Like, it would have felt wrong if they just said that was the same. Yeah, I know. But, like, the whole thing's not the same either. Like, so you can't, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's another conversation. And, you know, it, it's just, a, I think it just needs to be clarified somewhere on the internet because a lot of people are asking, like, whoa, what's going on here? Like, she's, you know, this isn't the first. Well, it, it technically is, um, and that's how it came to yes. be. So for anybody asking, there it is. Now, the men, let's talk about another first-time pipe master. Balaram fucking Stack from New York, New York, is the king of the world. Are you kidding me? Like, Guy goes from, I mean, and, you know, Koa Rothman, for those of you who don't know, put out this this video on YouTube before the event started. And, you know, he's being critical of the event, of the format, of the people that are in the event, et cetera, et cetera. And he went so far as to say that, you know, if anybody wins this, or even if I win this, I don't know if I'd consider it like a proper pipe master. I don't know if I'd call that person a pipe master. Balaram Stack is a fucking pipeline master, either by Van's legal team or by any other standard that you can set up. That guy has been parked at Pipeline for the past 15 years, every single winter, surfing it when it's three foot, surfing it when it's 30 foot and blown out and windy and getting some of the craziest tubes ever. And if you don't believe me, 
Go watch his film, Hail Mary. I don't know if it's out out yet, but it's it's been premiered in certain places and it's unbelievable. The pipeline section is incredible. The Chopo section is incredible as well. And this is basically a culmination of all these years that he's put in there. And it's also not a fluke either in the competitive sense because last year Balaram got second in the backdoor shootout, beat John John Florence. And a few years back, he made it to the Volcom Pipe Pro final as well. So this is like career achievement. Obviously, best year of Balaram's life after the Chopes trip, film coming out, Vance Vance Pipe Masters victory. Like, unbelievable. So proud of him. So proud that he's a Northeaster. And um, it was really cool to see him bring his mom up as well because Mary is the inspiration behind the film Hail Mary. And she's been a staple in his life and kind of like surfing culture for a long time as well. So good on you, Ball. Absolutely deserving. There's always one head bobbing around out there when it is just not even surfable. And it's Balaram Stack. Without a doubt, every year you're going, oh my God, I can't believe there's a surfer out there. Oh my God, that surfer's getting a fucking huge pit. And it's always ball. And it's like, absolutely deserving. And yeah, his competitive track record there's quite strong, but I did not see him winning that event with two like medium to smallish backdoor tubes. I thought, I, you know, for sure on that final day, I was like, oh, it's going to be tough for him to pull that off there. Like he was the sentimental favorite, I guess, behind Kailana. And, uh, yeah, that was so sick. And one thing that just made me super happy and that surfing's in a good place is that it's so gangster that he won that comp and just with his rashi on just gets to walk up into his accommodation that's owned, well, actually, I'd have to check the real estate tickets on this, but owned by his um, title sponsor of the bedroom that he stays in and has done for the last 15 years. Like... There's not many events around the world that you can, well, there's probably none that you, you, you might be, you know, staying around the corner or the places up the road and you've got to get your trophy and do the prezzo and get in a car. Like he just walked straight out of the ocean, chaired up the beach, straight into the zone. And he's just rock and roll at the Volcom house. That is so freaking cool. And the event ended at 12 PM. <laughs> that would have not mattered. It could have finished <laughs> at 7 AM. <laughs> so yeah i don't know i thought that was super cool and like having obviously everyone from his team there and like another volcom surfer in the final too like that's um yeah good good, yeah the final was a really cool mix right so you had as we talked about before the local native hawaiian kalana po sort of underdog story you have one of the top surfers in the world probably going to be competing for a world title next year griffin colapinto you have this exciting young ct surfer who continues to just sort of impress in any and all conditions joao chianca and then of course you have balaram stack from new york of all places um, so it was a really cool, that to me, like solidified the whole roster that Vans put together. Like, it's just such a great mix of surfers that are able to compete and apparently win this thing. Like looking at that roster and looking at the conditions, I, I honestly didn't think ball was going to be in contention to win this event, especially when it looked like it was going to end in small waves. But lo and behold, he figured it out, man. He found that one wave on the inside. That was just a nice little runner. He, uh, you know, Joao tried to back paddle him, but he couldn't. And he got that and he got straight back out. And then this like miracle wide sort of ain'ts ball bomb came to him and he surfed it perfectly. And that was that. Like we said, Griffin could have maybe taken it with an air at the end, but it wasn't to be. And I don't know, just sort of fairy tale, really. Shout out to pod listener uh, Seamus from Phillip Island, who sent in some feedback lately that um, our Haliva wrap up was far too short at 21 minutes long. So I hope this iteration of 
the drusp is uh, Morty liking. All right, Stacey. Well, until next year at the Vans Pipe Masters. But of course, we've got more stuff coming up. We've got the Vans Triple Crown of Surfing kicking off on January 3rd. So you and I can chat a little bit about that. I do have some breaking-ish news. There are going to be two new winners this year. John, John, and Carissa are out. So other people actually have a chance, which is kind of nice because I think they probably would have gone on to win for the next, you know, decade or two. Um, but same digital format as before, and we'll get into the sort of roster and who we think might do well in a future app. One last thing before we go. Every time you said roster, I thought you were saying raster, as in raster rob, uh, and it really only picked <laughs> up on that until about the third time you mentioned it. So if there's things in here that sound a little out of context today, um, that's why. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's the uh, Aussie-American disconnect. But hopefully one day, are we ever going to see each other, Stace? Um, are you going to come to Australia? I don't know. I hope so. We need to have a, a joyride surf off or something. Oh, we fucking have to. You would annihilate me, but it, I think it's <laughs> just well overdue. All right. Well, um, I guess that's it for this episode of The Cusp. Thank you, Stacy, as always, for your keen insights on professional competitive surfing, and I'll look forward to our next chat. Merry Christmas.